Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. We're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke. And today we'll be looking at chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Luke chapter 12, I'll begin in verse, reading in verse 13. Please give your full attention to God's inerrant word. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'm going to get political for a moment. I have all your attention now, don't I? <laughs> Be on your guard. During the elections last fall, we had legitimate concerns, all of us had legitimate concerns about how the outcomes of all the various elections would affect the big moral questions, big moral issues that our culture is facing today. We discussed the impact of these elections on issues such as abortion, Racism, sexual immorality issues, sexual gender issues, immigration. But there was very little discussion about a moral issue that God views as just as important as any of those. Greed, covetousness is the term Jesus uses. For most of my life, I have been told, and I have believed, that our national debt, as huge as it is, is a serious problem. And that deficit spending is both foolish and selfish, and that we ought to elect leaders who are committed to balancing our budget, just like we do in our own families. It's been a problem not just in this, this administration and this congressional leadership, but in the past one as well. Unknown to me, over the past 20 to 30 years, a new philosophy in, economic, in the economic world has taken over and has gotten very popular among many of our leaders. It's called modern monetary theory. And I don't pretend to understand it, not sure it can be fully understood, but I did come across this paragraph in U.S. News and World Report 
that describes, doesn't try to define it or explain it, but it describes the effect of it. Listen to what it said. Modern monetary theory argues that nations with the ability to produce their fiat currency can issue as much money as they need, and as a result, they have no pressures when it comes to financing. In other words, the government cannot run out of money, and it essentially has no financial constraints. While the government should have a budget, under this theory, the government doesn't necessarily have to worry about the deficit because it can fund projects by printing new money from its central bank. That explains a lot of what's going on in Washington right now. In other words, two of the very important lessons that I tried to teach my kids when they became teenagers and as they were preparing to go out into the world, two of the most important lessons I taught them obviously don't count. Lesson number one, don't spend more than you make. Lesson number two, avoid debt wherever possible. Obviously, the leadership is coming to the conclusion that those two lessons, which are essential for us as individuals and families, don't apply to the government. You know, I only started wondering about this and really looking into it when our government started sending out trillions of dollars of stimulus checks and grants during COVID. I asked naively the question, where is all this money coming from? It has to come from somewhere. Evidently, they're just printing it. When I, when I was a father of young children and we would be in the store and they would see a toy they want and they would beg me for that toy, I often would say, no, we can't afford it. And inevitably they would say to me, but dad, just go to the ATM and get some more money. And so I'd have to explain to them, it doesn't work that way. Well, that's not what our leaders believe anymore. We need to hear, all of us, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, no matter what your economic philosophy, we all need to hear carefully the warning of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. In this case, he was responding to a man who was all worked up about an inheritance issue in his family. And we don't know what the issue was. It's not explained here. We don't know who was being just and fair, who was being unfair. We don't know how much money was involved. We don't know what the family situation was. Something about an inheritance. And this man asked Jesus to take his side in the dispute. Interestingly, he doesn't ask him to judge fairly. He asks him to take his side in the dispute with his brother. We may not know the particulars, but it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? How often have we heard about inheritance issues causing deep conflict in families? That's because inheritance issues bring out the hidden greed in our hearts. Families can seem very peaceful and friendly, but when money gets involved, often it gets ugly. Why did this man take this conflict to Jesus? Well, that's because back in that day, it was common for Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers, spiritual leaders, to receive requests like this to settle minor disputes because they were experts in the law, the law of God. And so they were able to give 
decisions that would help resolve these kinds of conflicts. But Jesus, interestingly, says, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? That's kind of an ironic thing for Jesus to say, since he's the judge of all people and will someday sit on the throne and judge every thought, word, and deed. But what he was saying is, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to settle your petty disputes. One day I will return, and on that day I will make every wrong right, and every thought, word, and deed will be judged. But right now I'm here to save sinners like you and me. You know, like, like you and me. He, said he came to save sinners. So Jesus ignores the inheritance issue, doesn't address it at all. And he does what he so often does, which he goes right to the heart issue. He doesn't answer the man's question, doesn't, doesn't address the conflict. He says, let's look at your heart, young man. You see, the issue wasn't money. But it's what Jesus elsewhere calls serving money or what the Apostle Paul would later call the love of money. The Greek word that's used here for covetousness, it means literally an insatiable craving for something that you don't possess. An insatiable craving for something that you don't possess. It's not just a desire for something, but an insatiable craving. A biblical term for it would be lust. A lust for something that you don't currently possess. It's interesting that the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments, it's ostensibly, on the surface at least, talk about actions. You shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not lie, you shall not steal. Now we know that those commandments also address issues of the heart that are at the root of those actions, but they most obviously address the actions themselves. There's only one of the Ten Commandments that addresses the heart directly skips over all the sin, the surface sins, the sins that are visible to everybody else and goes right to the heart issue. And that's the last commandment, which says you shall not covet whatever belongs to your neighbor. It's because covet is at the root of so many of our sins. Coveting is more than just desiring something. It's not wrong to want a new car. Many of you probably want a new car. It's not inherently wrong to want a new car. It's not inherently wrong to want a car just like your neighbors. That's not necessarily coveting. Could be, but it's not necessarily coveting. I've often looked at my neighbor's cars to say, what do I like, what don't I like? You know, if I'm going to buy a new car, I'll often look at people around me, what they're driving. It's not necessarily coveting. But it becomes coveting or greed when you want your neighbor's car for the wrong reason, for selfish reasons, for sinful reasons. Maybe that reason is jealousy. You're jealous of your neighbor. And so you want a new car, but you really don't want him to have it. Or maybe it's pride. Maybe you're driving an old beat up junker and it's just not good for your pride. You want a new car so that you can think better of yourself or make a better impression on people. Or maybe you're just being selfish. There really are other greater priorities for the use of that money, but you want a car and you want what you want, and you want to have what you want. Or maybe it's just downright rebellion against God. God has not put you in a place to have a new car, but you rebelliously desire that car. And so it goes from desiring something to becoming coveting or greed. Coveting is what led Satan to rebel against God's authority in heaven and be cast out. Coveting is what led Adam and Eve 
to sin against God the first time in the garden and cause the fall for all mankind. Coveting is what led Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. Coveting is what led King David to committing adultery and murder. You know, coveting or greed is very difficult to recognize in our own hearts. It's very good at disguising itself as other things that seem like legitimate needs. I need to provide, provide for my family. I want justice. I want my rights. I want what's coming to me. I want to retire in comfort. I want my inheritance in this case. Greed is not only a sin of the wealthy. We tend to associate greed with wealthy people. But really, greed and covetousness has nothing to do with what you actually own, with how many possessions you actually have. It's about why you desire what you don't have. That's what coveting is about. Both the haves of our culture and the have-nots of our culture can be equally greedy. Both capitalists, which we associate greed with capitalists, don't we? But believe you me, socialists can be just as greedy as capitalists. It's not about what you possess. It's not about how rich you are, how poor you are. It's about how you look at things you don't possess. It's about why you want what you don't have. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. States it plain and simple. Covetousness is idolatry. That's because you want something in this world, in this life, some material thing, some, even some person maybe, you want something in this world to satisfy you instead of God. You're putting something from this world in the place of God in your life, looking for meaning or satisfaction in that thing. And so Jesus addresses the issue of this man's heart, which was covetousness. And he tells him a story. He tells a parable. He does very much the same thing that the prophet Nathan. You remember the Old Testament story, how prophet, the prophet Nathan came to David after David had committed adultery and murder. And Nathan confronted him with his sin by telling a parable. A parable about a man who had guests come for dinner. Instead of taking from his own wealthy flock... He went to his neighbor and took his neighbor's pet lamb and killed it so he could feed his guests. And David was furious. How could this man do this? You remember what Nathan said? You are the man. That's what Jesus is doing to this man who wants his inheritance rights. So he tells this parable. And in the parable, it's about a farmer, a rich farmer, who one year has an epic harvest, huge harvest, beyond his wildest imaginations. He brings in so, much, so many crops that his storage facilities, barns, we think of a barn, but probably not a modern barn, but storage facilities from the first century, they're not big enough to hold his harvest. And so he decides he needs to build bigger ones. He thinks all of my financial needs are met for the foreseeable future. Have you ever felt that way? Ever had that moment? You get a bonus at the end of the year. I don't know, whatever, you know, hit the lottery, you know. Hopefully you're not playing the lottery, but if you hit the lottery, that's what people feel like. It's like, wow, all my, all my worries, all my anxieties are gone. 
Now, I have to make the point here. Every time we address wealth, riches, we always have to make the point that the Bible nowhere says it's wrong to be rich. Abraham was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. Not wrong to be rich. But what the Bible teaches is that it's dangerous to be rich. It's very, very dangerous. As Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven because riches are such a huge temptation to covetousness. We don't see this rich farmer's sin until he talks because it wasn't wrong to have a big harvest. It wasn't wrong to be rich. What he says reveals his heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And so he says, I'm going to tear down my barns, build bigger barns, so that I can live a life of relaxation, eating and drinking and be merry. But he forgot to factor one thing into his plans. Actually, two things. Death and the one who numbers our days. And so God speaks to the rich man and says, you fool. You're going to die tonight. Then what will happen to all your wealth? Understand that in Scripture, a fool is not a stupid person. Matter of fact, most fools, by the biblical definition of fool, are very, very intelligent people. Because a fool, according to Scripture, it's defined this way in, in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's all it takes to be a fool in the eyes of Scripture is to say there's no God. You can either say it out loud or you can say it in your heart. In other words, there's two kinds of fools according to Scripture. The first kind of fool is the one who calls himself an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, the God of the Scriptures or any God. He doesn't believe in God and he says it, broadcasts it to the world. And then there's another kind of fool who in his heart does not believe in God, but outwardly he says he does. In other words, he says he believes in God, but he lives in a way that totally contradicts that. Those are the two kinds of fool, according to Scripture. So let's look at foolishness. And why is coveting so foolish? Well, first of all, again, it's not living in the awareness, belief, and submission to God. So the first foolishness of covetousness that Jesus describes is that coveting denies God's purpose for your life. Coveting denies God's purpose for your life. Listen, this is one of these statements you should write on your bathroom mirror so you look at it every day. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life does not consist in how many things you own. How much you own or how little you own has nothing to do with the value of your life. How much or how little you own has nothing to do with the purpose of your life. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. There is so much deep, profound wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a hard book to interpret. But it's worth the deep dive. And one of the things, basically the book of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon's journal of his attempts to find value and meaning and purpose in life through all the things that this world has to offer. The phrase that you keep reading in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over and over again is under the sun. 
Because that was what Solomon committed himself to do. I'm going to try to find meaning and value and purpose in my life under the sun. In other words, as though nothing above the sun exists. As though this material world is all that there is. Anybody who tries to live that way today, and most of the people around you are trying to live that way today, they need to read the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2 is where Solomon journals about his attempts to find meaning and purpose in wealth, in possessions, in accumulating things. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 2. He writes, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Let me skip to the bottom line. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You will not find satisfaction, you will not find meaning, you will not find purpose in your life by devoting yourself to wealth and riches and possessing of things. I don't know that from firsthand experience. No, of course I do, to some degree. We're all rich. Everybody in this room is rich by most standards. But you know how I really know that this is true? Because my wife made me watch Downton Abbey. <laughs> Those people in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were, they were so rich. You know how they spent their life? They sat around in their parlor playing cards, eating, drinking, gossiping, counting their money. They spent their whole day. That's what they, that was their whole life. And they were miserable. Those were miserable people. Their whole life was a literal soap opera. You will never find meaning and purpose in your life through pursuing things, riches, Solomon should have, instead of going out into the world and testing whether what God's word teaches are true or not, he should have been studying God's word. If he'd been studying God's word, he would have read about Moses, and Moses would have shown him the way to live, the way to find meaning and purpose in life. The writer of Hebrews, in giving his Hall of Fame of the Saints, he actually addresses this as a defining characteristic of Moses. Moses, Of course, Moses was adopted by an Egyptian princess. He grew up in the courts. He had power. He had wealth beyond our imagination in Egypt. But listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
He looked to God for his existence. He looked to God for his meaning. He looked to God for his purpose. And he lived his life fulfilling God's mission. So coveting denies God's purpose for your life. Secondly, coveting denies God's providence in your life. In Jesus' parable, he says, carefully, notice the wording, that the land of the rich man produced plentifully. In other words, it was God's blessing upon this man, this rich farmer. God provided the sun. God provided the rain. God provided the rich soil. God blessed this man. But there is no mention of God whatsoever in this man's response to God's blessing. His immediate response was, what shall I do? I will do this. I will tear down. I will build. I will store. He took credit and took full responsibility for the possessions that God blessed him with. He trusted in his own efforts to provide for his future so that he could live a life of relaxing and eating and drinking and being merry. The Bible teaches us that God provides all good things. Every single good thing in your life has been provided by God by one means or another. And what he expects of us, one of the missions of our lives is to be good stewards of what God has placed under our oversight. We are managers under him. And we are accountable to him as managers. We are to live, therefore, in humble gratitude for God's kind providences and submission to his will because all that we are and all that we have belongs to him. Ultimately, as Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's a daily discipline for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Forget not all his benefits. When we forget God's benefits, when we forget that God provides every good thing for our lives, and we begin to take credit for what we own, take credit for our bank account, our investments, our home, our car, whatever, then we feel we have a right to it. And that's why we hoard it for ourselves. But Paul teaches us a different way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he describes what a life with meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment looks like. Listen to how he describes it in 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, you are not going to be a generous person until you first recognize that everything that you have that is good is a gift to you from God. You're not going to be generous as a person until you understand that you're here as a steward to oversee your resources that God has placed under your oversight for his good, his glory, for his kingdom. So coveting denies God's providence. Thirdly, coveting, the sin of coveting, denies God's sovereignty. This rich farmer had a plan. 
And in his plan, he expected to live for the foreseeable future, eating, drinking, and being merry. But as he said that, he's unintentionally quoting an Old Testament scripture that was actually a scripture of judgment against the people of Israel. That phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13, where God is speaking judgment against the people of Jerusalem because they were trusting in the fortifications of their city and the stores of food to protect them from their enemies. They weren't trusting in God. And in, in the quote, it actually says, let us eat, drink, and be merry. What's the rest? For tomorrow we die. The rich farmer left that part off. And God reminded him. You know, James teaches us that planning for our future without taking into account that everything good comes from God and that we're stewards here managing our resources for eternal good, when we forget that and we plan our future and we say, you know, this is what I will do. I will store, I will build. I will eat, drink, and be merry. Let me read James' condemnation of that kind of what he calls arrogant thinking. Listen to James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See, it's not wrong to make plans. But make your plans with the understanding of God's sovereignty. Lord willing, this is my plan for the future. He goes on to say, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You see, God not only provides all the good resources that we enjoy in this life, but he also provides the number of days that we're going to serve him in this life. He counts our days. He knows the exact number. It's limited by his sovereign will. And none of us knows the numbers of our days. There is a great sentiment of this in Psalm 34, or 39, Psalm 39, beginning in verse 4. Listen to what the psalmist says. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. We are told again and again in Scripture that we are to see our earthly lives as being like the grass of the field or the flowers of the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. We're like a mist. We are here in light of eternity. And we will exist for eternity somewhere. In light of eternity, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years is just a snap. Just, just so, so brief, so short. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning 
What he's talking about is the funeral, the funeral service. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. That's a shocking thing. It's better. I mean, how many of you would rather go to a funeral than go to a big party in the neighborhood? But he's saying going to a party is only going to distract you from what's real and true and valuable in this life. But going to a funeral is going to remind you that God numbers our days. And none of us is in control of that. We lost a very much-loved sister in Christ yesterday when Sandy Klein went to be with the Lord. And I hope many of you are able to come to the viewing, to the funeral that's going to be this week. But I want you to come, hopefully, having looked at this text with a, with a different perspective. Yes, we come to grieve, we come to, to remember, we come to rejoice in the blessings that she's enjoying and God's presence. But I hope you're coming for that perspective that Ecclesiastes 7 is talking about, is that my life is just a mist. I'm like the grass of the field. My time here is short. And God is the one who sovereignly numbers my days. I need to take care and be on guard against all covetousness. And we do such a great job in this culture of insulating ourselves from death. Prior generations, going way back in history, death was so much more a part of their life. They, They witnessed it. They were around it all the time. But we insulate ourselves from it. And to the degree that we do that, We live and act as though we're going to live forever in this world, and we're not. None of us is guaranteed this afternoon, let alone next week or next year. Coveting denies God's sovereignty. Lastly, coveting denies God's riches. Coveting denies God's riches. Jesus says to this man seeking his inheritance, he's all preoccupied with getting his fair share of his father's inheritance, and Jesus says to him, Basically, you're the man. You know, this rich farmer, you know how foolish he looked, hoarding up all his possessions and then dying and losing it all in a moment. You know how foolish he looked? You're the man. That's how you're living. That's what you're living for. And so Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you see yourself as rich toward God today? Is that how you value your life? Is how rich you are toward God? Or is it how rich you are in your bank account or in your home or in your job? Jesus taught that there's really only two investment strategies that we can pursue in this world. We can either invest in this mist of a life that lasts about as long as the grass of the field, or we can invest in God's kingdom. You've been given many, many blessings. You've been, so many resources have been placed in your hands. And the question is, are you as a good steward or as a bad steward, are you, how are you using those resources to invest in this life or to invest in eternity? I mean, Jesus said it as plainly as he could possibly say it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The great church father, Augustine, 1,700 years ago, was studying this parable. You know one of his applications to studying this parable was? He said, this rich farmer in Jesus' parable, this rich farmer would have been truly rich, much, much more rich, if he had chosen to store his grain in the bellies of the poor and instead of his barns. He would have been much more rich to store his grain in the bellies of the poor than in his big barns. Paul says that all of your investments, when you think about how you've invested the resources that God has placed in your hands, all of those investments rest upon one great historical event. If this historical event happened, then you're gonna, you should in, clearly invest in this way, but if this historical event did not happen, you invest in the other way. And that historical event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in light of this parable. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, and therefore no one will be raised from the dead, then go ahead and eat and drink, because you're going to die soon. You better get as much enjoyment in this life as you can get, because that's all there is. But, in fact, he says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're, we were reminded just a couple weeks ago on Easter morning that everything about our life changed when Jesus walked out of that tomb. It made all the difference, especially in what we live for, what we invest in, where we find our value and meaning and purpose. Death is not the end of our lives. It's just when the fullness of our lives begins. And so should we, we should live this short earthly life preparing for that life that will go on for eternity. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, our sins are forgiven, his cross paid in full the debt that we owed to our holy God. And we are now not only out of debt, but we have been given the riches of his kingdom because when he justified us by faith alone, made us righteous in his sight as a gift from Jesus Christ, he adopted us into his family. We are sons and God of the king, which means we are heirs of his kingdom. And that's the inheritance we need to care about because it's eternal. The inheritance that Christ has won for us is literally and figuratively out of this world. So let me summarize. A life of covetousness is a foolish life. It's foolish because it denies God's purpose for your life. It's foolish because it denies God's provision for your life. It's foolish because it denies God's sovereignty over your life. And it's foolish because it denies God's true riches in Christ. And if you deny all those things, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you deny all those things, your life is only a mist. It's going to be over in a moment. And all that awaits you is eternal emptiness under God's judgment and there but for the grace of God go you or I Jesus has given us so much as a gift that he earned for us we've been so blessed we only need to receive it by faith as Pastor Owen quoted earlier 
2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Truly rich. Eternally rich. One last thought. I haven't mentioned this one yet. What's the opposite of covetousness? Be on guard against all covetousness. Don't live a life of covetousness. What's the opposite of that? Sweet contentment. We are to live our lives in this world, no matter what our circumstances, with contentment. How does that happen? Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's an important equation for life there. Delight yourself in the Lord. Same as what Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek the kingdom of God first. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. What he's not saying there is that if you give your life to the Lord, if you become a Christian, then God is going to give you all that your sinful heart desires. That's not what that verse is saying. What it's saying is that when you give your life to the Lord, he begins to transform your heart so that your heart begins to desire what is truly good, what is truly eternal, what is truly satisfying. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your regenerated, born-again heart. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, I'll close with this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Let's pray. Father, you have, I hope everyone in this room has been spending time in the last few moments just counting their blessings, just contemplating so many good things, even in this world, the things of this world that you have placed in our hands, that you've blessed us with, that we've enjoyed. But so much more than that, you've given us life in Christ. You've given us forgiveness. You've given us adoption into your family. You've given us the eternal riches of your kingdom. One day we will be in a place where there is no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more poverty, no more loss. Only your presence and all the goodness that flows from it forever. Lord, thank you for how you, by your grace, have chosen us, saved us, and given us hearts that understand those new desires. And Lord, we look to you to eternally fill them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.